In the beginning of time, God, the master gardener, created the heavens and the earth. And as we look to chapter 2, we find a very close examination of creation. In chapter 1, we're a bit far off, as if we're looking at creation through a telescope. But in chapter 2, we get to be up close and intimate with the acts of creation. Now, one of the things which is quite fascinating is that God, when he comes to this void, when he starts to even come to the things which are the elements he's bringing to the void, God does not consult them if they desire his blessing. In chapter 2, we find that neither the dry land nor humanity are asked if they prefer God's life. They do not ask if they prefer to be created, and that's a fascinating thing. But at the same time that they do not ask to be created, God nonetheless expects entire loyalty to them. He expects that he himself, he will work with them, he will live with them. And in return, they must be loyal back to him. There is an allegiance going both ways that is unmistakably fundamental to creation. Loyalty to life is one of the fundamental aspects of creation, and God expects it from all of the things that he creates. God, the master gardener, his plan is not small. His plan is for the flourishing of life, and it is quite literally the act of blessing. Blessing, if we understand it in its most literal sense, is the very act of giving life. God's work in the garden is to approach something with potential for good and to give it life and take it through to fruition. So welcome to Kingdom of the Logos, a Christian program of critical thinking and adventure, and it is produced by clergy in the Church of the Nazarene. I'm Pastor J. Dylan Proctor, and in this we're picking up in our study of Genesis, and this is the fifth sermon in that series. Today we're going to be moving into chapter 2, picking up in verse 4, and we're going to be examining how God is the master gardener and he expects loyalty to life from his created particularities. We look throughout the world and whether it be something like the dry land or perhaps it is something like humanity, God expects from them all that they will be loyal and that they will be unmistakably entirely faithful to, well, existence itself. They're not to be something which desires to treason against life itself or to be nihilistic or to just hope for death, but instead they are to realize that life itself is sacred. Genesis 1 shows us creation, and as God speaks it out of the chaotic waters of the void, we realize that the void is missing a few things. And it's missing meaning. It's missing that which is good. And as we move into chapter 2, we realize that as God comes to this, he wants a world that has meaning and he wants it to have goodness. But, unfortunately, Genesis 1 is something which we can only look at from a distance. It's like glaring down at the world through the inadequate window of an airplane. Our view is constrained and insufficient, but nonetheless, it is verily, it's indicating something to us that is very important. It is clearly indicative of activity of life below us. But Genesis 2, it takes us away from this airplane window and gives us a very up-close and personal understanding. We get a friendly invite into God's garden. Quite literally, we are not just invited into any garden, but we are taken to the property where creation of man takes place. We are no longer curious onlookers from afar, but rather guests invited to stand in God's chambers of creation. To put this in human terms, we are called to come to the very workshop of God and watch a master craftsman put together one of his magnificent works. Genesis, it is no longer from a distance looking at the chaotic waters, but now we have personal insight to the particularities of creation. But Genesis 2, beginning in verse 4, it doesn't begin out of thin air. Again, we're, we're past the void. We have a few things. Dry land is one of the elements that are there. And dry land is good. And all terrestrial beings realize this. However, without man to work the dry land, the dry land is unfulfilled. It is dusty and undeveloped. 
It is much better than the chaotic void that preceded it, but yet it lacks the fruition that God desires for it. And it is in this moment, where God comes to the dry land realizing that it has a next level to go for, that we find that man is created. So let's begin by reading from Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through 8. And I'll be reading from the NRSV. In the day that the Lord God made the heavens and the earth, when no plant of the field was yet in the earth, and no herb of the field had yet sprung up, the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was no one to till the ground. But a stream would rise up from the earth and water the whole face of the ground. And then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden and in the east, and there he put man whom he had formed. In this study, we are taking a look at the built-in morality that is found in Genesis. And this is the fifth sermon, but we're still understanding that there are some very deep principles that are slipped in these stories which we may not recognize, even though our minds may process them. God is being depicted as a gardener here. He really is the master gardener. He is one that has his prized garden of wonder, but he also has enormous landscapes to tend to. They fill the rest of the earth, and in fact, all the earth is nothing more than God's gardens. This master gardener, he has a plan for his yield, and he carefully calls creation to produce wonders. But as we contemplate how God tends his gardens, and whether they are something which are entirely dependent on him, or whether they are able to exist somewhat autonomously, these are one of the questions that we have, and there's a lot of confusion in the church. Where on the spectrum does life exist in relation to God? Is humanity nothing more than co-creators? Are they his clocks that he winds up and sets in motion and then forgets about? How does God's relationship actually work with this garden that he has created? But in order for us to discuss this, we have to step back a little bit. You see, God, he tends to his garden for a variety of reasons. And we find this with all gardeners. Some do it for occupational purposes and it's necessary for their survival and others do it well, they just want to have joy in life. For some people, it is a serious vocation, and for others, it is a hobby. When we come to this garden that God is planting and that God is working in, we find that his planet is not small. It's very dynamic. While he can come to something and say, well, the dry land, it is good compared to the void, it will not really be good unless it goes to fruition. And this is where we find out that God's motive for working in the garden is something very dynamic. It is not static or stationary. It is moving. It is coming towards a goal. God has a meaning and purpose designed for things. And we have to think a little bit in three dimensions to see this. Something like the dry land, it is initially good because it's no longer the void. But if it really wants to fulfill God's meaning, it must start doing other things. God's work in the garden, it is to really come to these various particularities, whether it be dry land or even something like humanity, he comes to them and he says, you have potential for good, but I want to take you to the next level. I want to give you more life. I don't want you to just be a few people. I want you to be something which is fruitful and multiplies. God never leaves things dusty and undeveloped. God always has a purpose in plan. So let's go a little bit further. One of the earlier things that I mentioned in this sermon is that neither the dry land nor humanity is approached by God and asked if they would like his blessing. They don't ask if they prefer to be created. God does not consult them if they desire his purpose. Yet, they are expected to have the utmost loyalty to it. God created life and he expects that humanity and, well, the rest of creation, it will be loyal to life. 
That's a very interesting thing because loyalty itself is a very particular concept and I want us to really examine what loyalty is and why I'm saying this. All honesty is not the same thing as loyalty. Often at times I find that people, they say they want some someone to be honest in their life when what they really want is loyalty. You see, loyalty is this idea that you have allegiance to someone. And even if you have disagreements, even if things are unclear, even if you don't understand everything that's going on around you, you will continue in that allegiance. You are concerned with the good of the other. Loyalty is a very, very powerful thing. And a lot of people really want loyalty in their relationships, even if they aren't able to to realize this. But not everything in the world is deserving of our loyalty. There are times where people invest in other people. They invest in ideas and institutions, and thus they feel naturally obligated to protect their investment. But this time, it may be a mistake. Not everything deserves our loyalty, but there is one thing which does, and that is the purpose which God calls us to in life itself. Of course, something like suicide is the ultimate treason against life. A life of nihilism, which has no hope, no aspiration, this too is a life of treason. Because God wants us to be growing. He wants us to be moving towards holiness. He wants us to be sanctified. God wants us to have something to grow from. And I want us to think in our own lives, do you have hopes and aspirations? How loyal are you to the very basic existence of life itself? This is something which we really should spend a lot of time thinking about. Many in our modern culture, they don't have anything above themselves that they want to aspire for. And thus, their loyalty to life, it starts to get misshapen. They start to have a loyalty to their own self and their current existence rather than the growth which God expects of us in life. There is something very interesting about being loyal, which we should really take time to appreciate. So let's change gears a little bit. I know I've talked a lot about 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, and it's a very good novel, and it deserves its compliments for being a good novel. But it is something which complements Genesis beautifully. And I don't want to spend a lot of time reiterating some of the themes that we have in the novel about breaking the laws of creation. And I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about Captain Nemo, who embodies these themes. Again, Captain Nemo, he is someone who has no allegiance to terrestrial life. He is breaking this basic loyalty which God expects of his creation. But there is another character in this story which actually does. And that is the character Kansei, who is the servant of, well, the main character, Professor Aranax. Kansei, who's one of these minor characters in the book, he's really the most phenomenal guy that you find there. He has absolute loyalty to his master. And that loyalty does not go unseen. In fact, it doesn't go unreturned. In fact, his master is entirely loyal to him as well. That's something which is really interesting especially compared to Captain Nemo, who rejects his loyalty to life. And when we look to our world around us, there are a lot of people who want to reject their loyalty to life. They, they want to get suicidal, they have suffering, they have pain, and they want to escape from that. And even Captain Nemo, he looks at the world and he sees a symptom. He says, well, you know, there's sin in the world, there's evil in the world, and that's bad, and therefore we should try to remove ourselves from the world. Maybe we should go live in a submarine. You know, it actually seems like a rational thing. Because he was correct in pointing out a symptom. And even people who, who may be treasonous against life itself, people who are, they have no hope, people who, who just think everything is, is negative and everything is, is, is very bad, people who may even consider suicide, there is a rational thought that says, well, life is full of suffering. They're correct in pointing to a symptom. However, their diagnosis is not very good. And their remedy for the situation is, is even worse. 
Just because you can point to a symptom, just because you can say, well, the world is, is terrible, doesn't mean that you actually are diagnosing why it's terrible or that you have the remedy, the antidote to that problem. In the church, we realize that there is a calling to be loyalty or calling to have loyalty to life. And this character, Kansei, who is a, a, an assistant, he's a servant to the, to the professor, he has complete loyalty to his master. And he's not an unintelligent man. In fact, he is quite an intelligent man himself, and he's also very wise. But even in his own wisdom and intelligence, his actions are not guided by his personal persuasion, but instead they are guided by his duties of serving his master. Loyalty is more important than his own well-being. There's a scene early in the story, and it's a fantastic scene. And of course, the novel is about people on a submarine, and one has to get on a submarine, and they do that by falling off a ship. But when the professor falls into the sea, naturally he flails around. He thinks that he is drowning, and he kind of cries out for help and then realizes that the ship is going away and he's going to drown in the ocean when he feels a hand reach out and grab him and pull him back to the surface. And he realizes it's his servant, Kansei. And he says, is it you? And Kansei responds, saying, myself, and awaiting my master's order. The professor, being shocked that his servant would be in the water with him, he says, the shock that hit the ship, that threw me off the side, it must have thrown you in too. That shock threw you in as well as me. And then Kansei says, nope. But being in my master's service, I followed him. And you find this shocking scene where when the master falls into the sea, the servant says, well, he went into the sea. What else do I have to do but jump into the sea? Now that sounds like a little bit of blind and ignorant loyalty. But you see, the thing is that Kansei is not motivated by just being attached to this man. He's motivated by the love that he has for him and the love for the purpose that this man's life has. He recognizes that there are a lot of things which are beyond his control, but yet his loyalty is something which is to be appreciated. And we know that in the kingdom of God, the loyalty of, of God is something which is beyond our imagination. God is the master and he will return the loyalty that we have to him. Kansei, in 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, he manages to save his master. And even though he jumped in the sea thinking it would probably be certain death, even though he wanted to help his master, they managed to find themselves on what they think is at first an island, then they find out it is a submarine. And he realizes that his desire to sacrifice himself is returned. There's another great moment in the story where everyone is safe and there's no real need to even approach danger. The crew, they're about to go out and fight some sharks in hand-to-hand -hand combat, and the professor, he looks to Kansei, the servant, and he realizes that Kansei is very nervous about the thought of going to fight sharks. And he says, Kansei, will you join us in this? And with nervous response, the servant says, if you, sir, mean to face the sharks, I do not see why your faithful servant should not face them with you. And they go out. <laughs> you see, this is something which is actually a natural part of life, us to have loyalty to something. Oddly enough, we tend to have loyalty to a lot more things than we realize. We're very loyal to our families. We're often loyal to our friends. And we need to remind ourselves that our loyalty should be modeled after our relationship with God and God's loyalty to us. Because while you see things like the character Kansei are found in fiction, these are actually also found in real life. And I want to move a little bit to talk about a real life scenario where there is a servant-master relationship that is of the utmost loyalty. Many of us are familiar with the RMS Titanic and the tragedy that happened there. But there's a wonderful story about Isidore and Ida Strauss, who were two of the passengers. They were wealthy, well-to-do people in society, and when the ship was going down, 
they had an opportunity to get on a lifeboat. Isidore Strauss, being a man, he was going to stay behind on the ship, and when Ida Strauss, her, or his husband, or his wife, realized that her husband was staying beside, she too said she would stay behind. But she had a young maid with her that she had recently taken into her service. And she looked at the young maid and realized she had not been married and she didn't have any children. And she looks at her and she says, go take my place in the lifeboat. I've lived a full life. I have wealth. Here, let me give a gift to you. Go out, be fruitful and multiply. And in that scene on the Titanic, you literally see a master who would expect loyalty from their servant. They return the loyalty of the servant and say, I would rather you live than myself. Take my place, take my life, go out, be fruitful, and multiply. We find that this does happen in human society. Furthermore, it is actually the story of God. You see, while it may seem strange for one to have loyalty expected to where they're like that of Kansei, they see their master jump in the water and they jump in, we realize that sometimes the Kanseis of the world, they die when carrying this loyalty out. But in the end, God's loyalty is returned to us. The master gardener, he is so loyal to the dry land, so loyal to the humanity which he breathes life into, that God himself will return. And when we look to the coming and the advent of Jesus, we realize that as Jesus, he comes to the cross, this is a return on the loyalty to humanity. For the master has come to take death away from the servant. When Jesus goes to the cross, he is the suffering savior. He's not going there to appease the bloodlust of God, but instead to wear the suffering and death of humanity that it may be overcome. And while we are expected to have loyalty to life, we have assurance that God's loyalty to humanity is greater than anything we could imagine. Loyalty to life is a very important thing. There are tragedies which come and sometimes our loved ones pass and we realize that that is a sad thing. In fact, it's a very tragic thing. It's a heartbreaking thing. It is so heartbreaking that God himself would go to the cross to where death that it may be overcome. In the church, we realize we have aspirations beyond this life, and that's an important thing for us to keep close to ourselves. So we're going to go ahead and close, but I want you to think about loyalty to life. Again, I'm Pastor J. Dylan Proctor, and if you have any thoughts, questions, or comments, please reach out to me. And with that, God love you, and have a blessed day.